Hello and welcome to Euractus Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Julia Dam. I'm Natasha Fett. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractus Agri-Food team. So this week we have a very exciting guest. We would like to welcome to the podcast room Yara. Yara, introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Yaroslava Buchta and I'm a new agri-food reporter for Euracti. Our newest recruit. Yeah. Very happy to have her in the team. And, and very proud too. Yes. And in the podcast, the first time ever on the podcast. So it's a pleasure to have you. And Yara has hit the ground running. She's already been writing articles and doing all kinds of things for us and getting st stuck straight into the agri world. Um, and actually, she had a very interesting interview this week. Uh, Yara, who was your interview with? Oh, the interview was with Markian Mentrasevich, who's the... Oh, she said that very oh, well. Yeah. Good thing I wasn't I... saying that name. <laughs> yeah, 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 actually, the, the normal is basically us um, covering ourselves of... Uh, Mispronouncing it. Yeah, everything. but in this case, it was super... Uh, we'll we'll do a little good. training on that. <laughs> <laughs> and who is this guy, Yara? Uh, Markian Dmitrasevich is uh, Ukraine's deputy agriculture minister. Okay, so what kind of stuff did you... He's actually coming to Brussels, isn't he? He is. Today. It's true. He today. is coming to the European Parliament's Agri-Committee meeting. So you're having a sneak peek of what he's supposed to say to MEPs. Like, mm -hmm. This is... Uh, An exclusive. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> Big, big stuff. Right? And so you guys spoke uh, quite a lot about this idea of the solidarity lanes mm -hmm. between the EU and Ukraine. So maybe give a, a quick overview about what these solidarity lanes are and, and what he kind of thought, what was, what was his feelings mm -hmm. about this? Well, solidarity lanes is um, like kind of measures suggested by the EU to help uh, export Ukrainian grains as uh, um, the main the main route for Ukrainian grains export were previously seaports that are now blocked uh, due to full scale Russian invasion, mm -hmm. and therefore everyone's looking for like alternative routes for grain exports, and solidar solidarity lanes were like kind of meant to to help Ukraine do this mm -hmm. and so we we actually had a nice and brief conversation about that mm -hmm. um, so uh, Mark Yan's point was that solidarity lanes are um, right and healthy reaction of people who understand what the issue is and uh, that the world actually needs Ukraine Ukrainian grains uh, but his main point and a point that is now like widely discussed is that these um, these measures are still not enough as um, as in general it's impossible to export uh, uh, that amount of grain that was exported through Ukrainian seaports and therefore the only way to come back to previous uh, amount is um, unblocking the ports and winning the war for Ukraine. Hmm. So he kind of thinks this idea is nice but but not enough, basically, to try and compensate. Uh, well, talking in numbers, um, last month Ukraine managed to export 1.7 million tons. And uh, the maximum that can be reached if um, uh, everything goes right is actually 2.2 2 million tons. While before this full-scale war, it was 5 and more million tons. Mm. Yeah. Mm. No, it's actually interesting, uh, two aspects, as, uh, as the, the were lighted by Yara. And the first one is, of course, the, the solidarity lanes. Yes, it's um, 
particularly the fact that uh, you know exporting through railways could be problematic but also uh, the fact that only winning the war of course i mean with it's a representative of the ukrainian government but at the same time uh, there were a lot of attempts to, um, diplomatic and and um, uh, negotiations are are carrying out uh, between ukraine and turkey for instance and the other aspect uh, the other interesting uh, topic was the um, last question that the yara asked to uh, the minister uh, which was basically um, i mean is not super convinced by russia as a um, reliable partner <laughs> we know why understandably. but yeah, understandably you guys also spoke about um you know about harvesting and the harvest time is approaching and there's a lot of concerns about mainly around storage right because we can't get the grain that's there now out russia's also targeting storage facilities for grain and at the same time we're going to have a new harvest coming in that needs to go somewhere um, and he said some interesting things about different options that ukraine might have there so maybe you could explain a little bit more about what what he said on this uh, yeah, actually, he mentioned uh, two main options for Ukrainian farmers. One of them is um, so-called like plastic bags, uh, where you can put up to 200,000 tons of grains. And basically, it's just a plastic bag waiting for its time to to come to be used. And another alternative, it's like a foreign technology for Ukraine. It's uh, temporary silos. Like, it's kind of... Um, floor on the ground so that moisture doesn't like come up uh, then with a trim on top and um, a tent. So now Ukraine is um, working with the US, Canada and other partners who have this uh, technology that they use and they're in the stage of negotiating to use this technology as well to uh, temporarily store the grains. It's very interesting. And if you want to read more about uh, Yara's interview, which I highly recommend you do, you can check that out on your active. Um, but actually, we also have another... It's even, it's even in German, imagine. It's even in German. Yeah. It's even in French also, I think, also. Yeah, all the choice. Well, it will be at some point. So yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. the choice is yours. Um, but we also had another interesting interview this week. And by we, I don't mean me. I mean, Yulia. Yulia had an interesting interview this week. Yulia, who was who it you spoke to and what, what were you talking about? Yeah, I spoke to a, a senior official in the German ministry who is the head of um, the Department of International and EU Affairs at the German Agri-Ministry. Um, and we actually talked about similar uh, similar things that we've kind of um, touched on also now. I mean, we talked about uh, these mission, like the possibility of um, missions to escort Ukrainian grain from uh, from the ports. And by that, you can see that, we, I mean, we're talking about defense and like geopolitical topics here. Uh, but at the same time, it's about food security. And actually, this um, ministry official told me that in her mind, uh, Grain has become a means of war now, and that basically food security or global food security has been given a geopolitical component by this war against Ukraine. Is it uh, something that also Wojciechowski used to say? Like, used to say? No, I mean, you know, used said to say. Repeatedly. Had, yeah, no, yeah. no, it's this idea of food becoming yeah. a central kind of geopolitical yeah. and security. It, it was basically doing this, the, this comparison with the energy. And um, so, yeah, it's exactly the same thing that Yulia was, uh, was mm -hmm. about. So it's basically something that is uh, quite discussed in uh, in the bubble mm. recently. Yeah, I mean, we can see that basically um, 
Russia is blocking Ukrainian ports, but at the same time, is itself profiting from that by exporting its own grain to the higher prices that have been rising because it's blocking uh, Ukrainian ports. And then on the other hand, there's this kind of war of the narratives that Russia is trying to claim um, that the insecurity around food on, on the global level is coming from Western sanctions, which exclude food exports, by the way, um, rather than from it blocking um, the Ukrainian ports. There's there are some food actually I mean, really super mild, but uh, like uh, seafood, luxury food. But um, in terms of yeah, uh, so the poor the poor I, people who can't eat caviar that's uh, because of Western sense. Okay, quite traumatic. Exactly, like Julia said. I mean, the, the the intention of the EU from the very beginning. I mean, we arrived at the sixth package of sanctions. Okay, mm. uh, the intention of the EU from the very beginning was to avoid. Uh, because, of course, not only for the geopolitical implication, but also because, uh, you know, you can basically trigger famine or, or uh, you know, world hunger. You know, it has a, a lot of impacts on, uh, on the global food supply. But this narrative is becoming increasingly pervasive, actually, this idea that it's the sanctions, you know, Russia's Russia's narrative that it's the sanctions causing um, food insecurity rather than Russia's invasion of Ukraine that's called, causing food insecurity um, to the point that, you know, we spoke about it last week on the podcast, but um, that, you know, the uh, the president of the African Union, Maki Saul, who's also the president of, um, sorry, the chair of the African Union, who's the president of Senegal, <laughs> mixing everything up there, um, Maki Saul, he actually spoke with EU leaders about this. And there was this real push to try and get a common narrative and a common ground that, um, that it is Russia's actions and purely Russia's actions that are causing this and not sanctions. Um, but that being said, it's still something that's kind of a narrative that we've seen spreading across Asia, Africa, um, South America, different places. It's definitely a concerning kind of rise of this narrative and, and challenging that is is becoming an increasing problem. Yeah, it's also, also, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, also, honestly, um, I don't have the feeling that so far Western leaders have come up with a super effective counter strategy to this. Like, for example, this um, ministry official, I also asked her, um, like, what what do you do to counter this kind of stuff? Um, and basically, she just reiterated this factual argument that it is the war of aggression on Ukraine and not the um, not the sanctions that are exacerbating hunger in the world. Mm. But she didn't really give any clear points of action as to how how we can uh, convince the global publics or especially the countries uh, affected by this of mm. this point i asked the same thing to a czech government uh, official the other day ahead of the czech presidency which starts on the 1st of july and will run to the end of the year um, and actually it was interesting because his response was we just need to increase food production we need more food if we can show that we are growing more food and, and and feeding more of the world and sharing this around, you know, trading food that has a, a stamp with an EU label, then this is going to be a way that, you know, we can show the EU is not a cause of global hunger. But that is opening a whole other box of, you know, it's like Anne Pandora said, what's in that box? We're going to suddenly go into yeah. all kinds of uh, discussions around whether that's wise or sustainable or uh, you know, a viable solution. I mean, it's, it's not that the EU uh, isn't, uh, like, I mean, it, it's quite of a productive continent uh, in terms of um, food stuff. Like, I mean, uh, we always had the other problem that we actually waste a lot. Um, but um, of course, this is, 
not only to um, uh, you know provide uh, the world with the missing grains or cereals or uh, rapeseed oil uh, and so on missing from Ukraine, but this is it, this is also a way to influence markets uh, because at the moment it's a problem of uh, prices. Um, in uh, in the commodity markets, so of course you don't have uh, the, the only way to influence uh, this kind of commodity markets is to increase or decrease the production. I mean, we've seen um, what what happened with the, with some uh, legalized cartel like the the OPEC with the oil um, with the oil uh, market. No, so um, the only way to to have an influence on these markets it's it's to um, increase or decrease the, the, the production. And that's probably one of the main message that sometimes is a bit misled by uh, the general public because it seems like we're going to have a uh, um, problem in the production. Actually, the problem is the in terms of affordability in certain areas of the world, like mm-hmm. Tunisia. We know what happened in the, during the Arab Springs in Tunisia that were actually triggered by the price of uh, bread, the price of uh, cereals. And this week, the UN and the World Food Programme um, actually issued a statement uh, basically highlighting the severity of, of the situation. And actually, uh, one of them, David Beasley, who's head of the, um, the World, World Food Programme, Program, um, was actually warning that the situation now currently is worse than the situation we saw with the Arab Spring. So, you know, it's definitely not something, you know, something something to be taken very, very seriously, the kind of social unrest that can arise out of this. But you're right that the nuance of the situation is is not really translating, I think, into uh, into the current discourse, yeah. the public discourse, this idea of where the actual problem is, what the actual problem is. And, and obviously, of course, if you can't, the way you frame the problem obviously impacts the way that you, you frame, you know, you think that the solution should be. So the framing of it is incredibly important. This narrative is incredibly important. And it's a message that I think is getting quite lost. Um, but as with Yara's interview, um, you can also find Yulia's interview on youractive.com um, in German as well and in French. Yeah, and in French. So be sure to check that out. And this week, I bring you all to a very sunny place in... Uh, Brussels. Yeah. <laughs> Joking. I wish. Um, in Cadiz, uh, it's in Andalusia, in the, the south of Spain. Uh, as I said last week in the podcast, I was visiting a very peculiar national park in the Cadiz Bay. Uh, why peculiar? Because the presence of human activity is quite visible. Uh, also because the park consists in marshland, beaches, uh, sand dunes. And in the past, the salt production was one of the main activities here. Uh, but I want to talk about La Esperanza, which La Esperanza means uh, hope. Mm-hmm. And it's... Uh, it's uh, I really need some of that right now. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a salt marsh in the national park where human activities such as ecotourism and self-production meet with the protection of biodiversity, offering some very nice examples of a blue economy. So in 2012, the University of Cadiz got the permissions to develop some activities in this area, which was basically abandoned for 30 years. And you can imagine the consequent biodiversity loss. But nowadays, 70% of the biodiversity in the whole Cadiz Bay is enclosed in the 39 hectares of La Esperanza. 
but I, I spoke about this with the uh, managing director of La Esperanza, Alejandro Perez Hurtado, um, and uh, who, who tell, told me more about this project. I am Alejandro Perez Hurtado. I am the director of this research center on Salinas, Salina La Esperanza, from Cadiz University, southern Spain. And we work here in these 39 hectares of Salins as a natural laboratory and a marvelous for me natural laboratory that try to link three important questions. The culture, how to recover the culture of the Salin, how to recover the economy and how to recover the environment. In this uh, way, so we try to, to give the land to young people to develop a business that uh, we try to link the tradition and the old tradition of the master of Sali culture with the knowledge of the university, with the innovation and research. This is one line. And because it's important to have a new generation of a young bus uh, businessman in relation to the salt is the new generation of the marshes in, in the uh, 21st century. So what got my attention uh, in particular was the importance of both time and space in uh, La Esperanza. Uh, time is a crucial component in places where human activities are one with the environment. And, and uh, just to make an example, salt is harvested between June and August, but before is the period where when uh, migratory birds populate the area and consider that Cadiz is basically placed uh, on the migratory bird highway. And also space is another factor because uh, the conflict among different species of birds is also reduced by uh, basically the, the conformity of salt marshes as different species pick a different habitat on the basis of the depth of uh, groundwaters. Another very important question, how to increase the biodiversity. So from the last 33 years, we work here developing different ways to manage the salines to increase the biodiversity, uh, working with the vegetation, the water and the type of the ground, increasing the the breeding areas for birds, for example. Here is the 70% of one species, can discover the 70% of all the natural part, 10,000 uh, hectares are only in this 39 hectares. It's one of the most higher density in Southern Europe for this breeding species. And we produce this with programs of volunteers during the past 17 years. And birds in particular are bioindicators. I mean, Alejandro was, was uh, calling them uh, living sensors. And uh, indeed, the Cadiz University team uh, managing the area is collecting lots of their parameters. For instance, there are some species like the uh, Chortilejo patinegro, uh, who elected this park as their biggest breeding area in Europe. But there are also these um, avocet which is uh, the, 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 this bird species with the, this curved back beak. Uh, I have actually a curiosity about this. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, they basically live in a polyandry society. Oof, what does that mean for our yeah, listeners? Yeah, polyandry society is basically is statistically the number of male is uh, higher than the number of female there. Mm-hmm. So what have, out of four eggs, uh, two are male, one is female, and one is basically 
eaten by seagulls. But uh, um, uh, so this created a, a society in which uh, female uh, are a scarce resource, uh, if, I, if I may. <laughs> so after a female mate with a male, the male avocet um, stay there with the eggs, taking care of the babies, mm -hmm. and the female go finding another mate. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very progressive. <laughs> very progressive. I'm, I'm basically surrounded by women that are very interested by this. Uh, <laughs> but surrounded but, by women. How yeah. hard you like this? <laughs> Unlike these birds who uh, don't have any women to flocking <laughs> around me. Yeah, yeah, indeed. But um, we spoke with another um, uh, expert from the University of Cadiz, uh, Macarena Castros Casas, about the biodiversity in the area. There are some ecosystems that is not so good in biodiversity, but they are because they are so good in specialist uh, species and, and endemic species or unique species that they are there. So maybe it's not so high, so well on numbers, but don't this, this specialist. It's a very stressful ecosystem. So the, the plant species uh, overall that they, 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 they are living there have to cope with this and there are two main um, adaptations to live on there. One is excreting, they have a, a special gland, glands to excrete the salts. And the other one is to uh, reserve water, mm. so they can dilute the, water, uh, the salt inside. So they are like a big, uh, like a bag of water, uh, and they can dilute the, the salt there. And the conservation project uh, in the area of the Cadiz Bay is managed by Salarte, which is a no-profit organization. And I spoke with the conservation manager of Salarte. Uh, my name is Juan Martín. I am environmental manager. Uh, I am working in uh, nature conservation from uh, uh, 2000. And I have uh, 22 years uh, working on that. Well, um, Salarte is the fund for the recovery and the land stewardship of the Mars. It's a little NGO founded in 2000, in, in 2000, uh, 10 years ago, in order to demonstrate that the marshes and the artisan salt pans are a treasure and are um, important habitat that link the human uh, activity with, uh, with the promotion of the, the fostering of the biodiversity. And it's uh, were founded because the situation, the current situation about the marshlands and the salt pans are dramatic in all the Mediterranean basin, not just in the Bay of Cadiz or in, in, the, in the Andalusian uh, shore, in, in the Mediterranean basin. The interesting thing is that uh, in this area, we have also a luxury uh, restaurant located on an abandoned marsh. Uh, it's actually the only three-star Michelin restaurant uh, located in a natural park in Europe, probably in the world. Anyway, um, Aponiente uh, is the name, and uh, it's in the city of uh, El Puerto de Santa Maria. 
Um, it's managed by the famous Spanish chef uh, Angel Leon. And actually, uh, Juan Martin, um, uh, the, the, the managing director of Salarte, is also the biologist of this restaurant. And we talk about this project too. Well, um, Aponiente is a three Michelin star restaurant that is a very a visionary project uh, of Angel Leon, the chef of the sea, because it's a, um, a committance with the recovery of the heritage and the salt pans and the marshes. Um, it's very important for a conservationist how a chef uh, looking for the, the luxury and the vanguard uh, worldwide uh, beat uh, in order to move his restaurant to an abandoned uh, salt pan and how he invests a, a, a crazy amount of uh, money, uh, more than 2 million euros in restoring an abandoned salt pan and abandoned tidal mill to bring uh, um, customers from worldwide to enjoy a um, luxury milling uh, and lunch and dinner, but using the humble fish, the humble uh, crustacean, the high value products from the salt pans and from the marshes uh, that are very richness, but uh, the current society uh, don't want. For this week's Flavour of the Week, we have a very special Flavour of the Week brought to you by Yara. So we'll pass over to her. So there is the song that has become very, very popular in 2022 after the full-scale invasion of Russia. And the first draw of this song basically is um, the Rag Kalina or Galder Rose has banned. And this row represents the sadness of Ukraine. And the ending of it is a confident statement. Ukraine will be cheered up and the Viburnum or Galderos or Kalina uh, will be raised. In fact, mm-hmm. um, Kalina is a um, very symbolic plan for Ukrainians. And it is associated with uh, home and it was usually planted near houses. It was used during a lot of traditional uh, rituals. It also can symbolize motherhood, youth, and um, sometimes it symbolizes Ukraine as it is. And it's used in many, many folk songs, Ukrainian folk songs. Mm. And um, it actually has sleek red uh, berries. Um, They also sometimes might be associated with blood. Um, and these berries have a bitter taste and uh, most often uh, they're not eaten like directly from the bush and um, this, there's either sugar or honey added to make these berries sweeter uh, for almost all the recipes with it. This might be the first bitter flavor of the week we ever done, probably. Gosh. We're quite sweet leaning usually. Yeah. Yeah, I know, indeed. Or indeed. like carbs and stuff. And... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but you would also like to add some sugar to these berries. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> They're super bitter. 
And uh, yeah, basically to make it less bitter, you can freeze these uh, berries. Uh-huh. And that is why um, very often they're collected like late October when the temperature mm-hmm. falls below uh-huh. zero. It's like before people do, didn't have freezers, so that was like yeah, natural. So you'd conserve them. Kind yeah, of yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We were not used to this kind of, uh, no. you know, little trick because I mean... No, basically it's either like juice with sugar or tea from dry berries or jam or marmalade, like or sauces, like whatever. You can make literally almost everything that you would make from any other berries for meat. Mm-hmm. But like, as I said, like most like most likely you'd want to add something sweeter to them. And um, well, uh, my granny, for example, would always give me a couple of spoons of this Kalina with sugar when I was uh, ill. Mm-hmm. And uh, she always told me that it's a very nice plant rich in vitamins, acids, so that I could uh, get better soon. So I don't know, either was my... Uh, patriotic feelings or my granny's <laughs> love or just Kalina itself, but it really helped and worked. No. At least something worked. So. Something worked, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, by the way, it can also be used as a basis for making some kind of liquor or any other alcohol drinks. Mm. So that might work for someone as some. well. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. And now is the moment of uh, of the free food uh, request. So if you have, uh, <laughs> actually, if you have a bottle of uh, of Kalina liquor, uh, yeah, you can always uh, bring it in, and we will yeah give it a go, give it a try. I, I oh, it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Yara. And that's all from us this week. This week, the AgriFood podcast is produced by Euractiv's AgriFood team: Gerardo Fortuna, Natasha Foot. Uh, Julia Dam, also with the participation of Jaroslava Bukta, uh, with the technical support of Evi Chiori. And this podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Stitcher and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the latest agricultural news from the EU. I'm Natasha Foote. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>